is that Eeyore is the patron saint of pre-millennialists. In fact, there's a resemblance, isn't there? Yes. Eeyore is also the patron saints of all pessimists. <laughs> well, many thanks to uh, Henry for uh, fixing the glasses this time with the hot glue gun. So, and thank you for the hot glue glue gun. Glad we had crafts going on. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are an almighty God and your glory fills the heavens and the earth. And we glory in you for you are our God. We glory in the beauty of the creation and we glory in the beauty of Christ our Savior who has accomplished for us a perfect rest. We praise you for the rest of our justification and for the hope of our adoption and for uh, the hope that is in us uh, through the spirit of the final glory that shall be ours in Christ forevermore. And we thank you that you've given unto us uh, a day of rest, not a physical rest, but a day to uh, participate in a foretaste of heaven and to enjoy those means of grace that you've appointed for us to store up within us hope and to equip us to persevere unto that rest. And as we continue our discussions today uh, on the New Testament's doctrine of the Sabbath, we pray that your spirit will indeed be our teacher. Be merciful to us for Christ's sake. Amen. Some of you know of the uh, early Christian heretic named Marcion who was a Gnostic. Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was not the God of the New Testament that was revealed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, thus he rejects uh, the Old Testament. He rejects the humanity of Christ. And in order to do so, he then had to do a very severe edit of the Bible. He was kind of the precursor of Thomas Jefferson. He took his scissors to the Bible he cut out the entire Old Testament and what he had left was an edited version of Luke and ten of the Apostle Paul's epistles. That way he could rationalize what he was teaching. And we recognize that uh, Marcion was a heretic and what he did uh, was uh, a blasphemous act. But many evangelicals today take their scissors to the Bible, don't they? When they say that the Old Testament uh, gives us history that is true. It is the Word of God. It gives us true history. It gives us prophecies of Christ that have been fulfilled. But the doctrines and the commandments of the Old Testament are not binding on us in the New Testament unless they are repeated in the New Testament. Now, basically what they've done is they've taken their scissors and excised a number of very important things from the Bible. Much of what the Bible has to say about marriage is found in the Old Testament. Much of what the Bible has to say about our children 
and their membership in the church and the covenant is found in the Old Testament. And if you excise all these passages, you cut them out, uh, then you lose these precious Christian doctrines. In contrast to that view that says that unless uh, something is repeated in the New Testament, we're not bound by it in the New Testament church, uh, the Reformed theologians have always maintained that whatever is revealed in the Old Testament is binding unless the New Testament does away with it. And that's a very uh, tremendous radical difference, isn't it? Uh, between saying what is in the Old Testament is not binding unless it's repeated to saying what is in the Old Testament is binding unless it is abrogated or done away with. Now, we have looked at the Old Testament foundation of the doctrine of the Sabbath. We've seen that it's a creation ordinance uh, suggesting that it is then a perpetual moral obligation repeated in the Ten Commandments as a moral law so that our days might be structured for the use that God has appointed in them and with precious promises attached as in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14 that as we keep the Sabbath, God will give us great delight in Him, grant us spiritual victory and an enjoyment of our inheritance. But that brought us then to the New Testament. And the first uh, question that we, or objection that we had to anticipate and answer is that Christ does away with the Sabbath. And so yesterday we looked at the teaching of Christ on the Sabbath and we saw that he does not do away with the Sabbath, merely the additions of Jewish traditionalism. And he takes those away to free the Sabbath for the purposes appointed by God. And from the teaching of the Lord we then garner the two very important principles that we do on the Sabbath, those things that promote the purposes of the Sabbath and those things that promote the well-being of our neighbor. But this brings us now to a set of passages in the Pauline letters that many claim do abrogate the Sabbath. And I'm thinking of the uh, three passages. The first is in Romans chapter 14. Verses 5 and 6. Romans 14, 5 and 6. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and give thanks to God. And then Galatians chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 10 and 11. You observe days, months, and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And then Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, many suggest that in these three passages, the Apostle Paul uh, does away with any necessity of any special day that, of course, the church has to have a day to worship and the church may set that day uh, whenever it wants to. Uh, 
so that the people of God will not forsake the assembling of themselves together, but the church may not set a day, uh, nor are any of us obligated to observe a day. And what I want to show you this morning, and that is a gross misunderstanding of what the Apostle is saying. And we're going to use Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 to uh, get at uh, the Apostle's instruction here. In fact, I hope that you will see by the time we finish that uh, the Apostle in this abrogates seventh-day worship, but also proves that the church does not have the authority to establish any day of worship that it determines. As you know, Colossians was written to deal with kind of a, of a hybrid heresy. It was a combination of uh, Judaism and Gnosticism. And the particular heresy that Paul is addressing um, combined the works righteousness element of Judaism that included the observance of ceremonial laws uh, in order to be, have a righteous standing before God. But coupled with that, the ascetic philosophy of Gnosticism that taught that uh, Christ was an emanation from God, uh, uh, moved down through a series of uh, descending steps, and that we have to have uh, philosophy to understand the mind of God and coupled with that an asceticism that denied the use of uh, foods and physical and material pleasures. Now, it's uh, over against that that the apostle in this book asserts the supreme uh, divine authority of Christ as Savior and lawgiver, that uh, we do not come to know God through philosophy, but through the clear light of revelation, and that uh, we do not serve God by obedience to human laws and commandments or traditions. And after having established the authority of Christ here in chapter 2, he goes on to address this matter of ceremonies in verses 16 and 17, food, drink, and religious days. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, literally, or of Sabbaths. Now, he begins by addressing this matter of foods. This hybrid heresy has uh, said that uh, we may not eat certain foods, perhaps applying the Jewish food laws, other laws of man-made asceticism. And Paul says that no man may be your judge with what you eat or drink. He expands on that at the end of chapter 2, verses uh, 20 through 23. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so he shows that uh, no man has a right to tell you what to eat or drink, and that the observance of laws of asceticism in no way help us to put to death the lust that yet remain. Uh, within us. We must do that in the spiritual ways that God has appointed. And of course, in this, the Apostle is reminding us of what he will say later 
for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, a principle already enunciated in Psalm 104 that God has given uh, food and drink, wine and grain to man uh, as a gift to make glad his heart. And Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And that, by the way, is why we, uh, uh, one of the reasons we return thanks at our meal. Uh, we recognize that God has given us the gift of foods uh, in all their diversity, and that we uh, give, express our thanks to him, and in doing so, these things are sanctified to our own enjoyment and well-being. Now, having uh, dealt then uh, with food, the apostle goes on to deal in the second way uh, with uh, Jewish days. Now, we're looking here at the repeal of Jewish Sabbath days. Under Number one, the Christian is under no obligation to keep Jewish Sabbaths. So having dealt with foods, Paul now addresses the matter of Jewish days. The three terms that are used here in Colossians 2.16, festival, new moon, or Sabbath days, or as, as I said, the word also is translated Sabbath. These three terms used together are what we would call a technical phrase brought right out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In other words, anybody in Paul's day reading these words put together in this phrase would immediately think of the Jewish ceremonial system. Let me give you a couple of examples. Go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 3. Talking here about the reforms of Hezekiah, he also appointed the king's portion of his goods for the burnt offerings, namely for the morning and evening burnt offerings and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, for the new moons, and for the fixed festivals. Now, those three words, Sabbaths, new moons, and fixed festivals in Greek are the same words that we find here in Colossians chapter 2. And obviously, uh, in Chronicles, we know that it's describing the uh, religious days of the Jewish ceremonial system. Another example would be Nehemiah chapter 10. Same kind of thing in verses 32 and 33. Nehemiah 10, 32 and 33. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, for the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times. And here again are the three words that we find in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. So we see in the language that Paul uses, I hope you see, that he has in mind something very specific when he says, let no man be judged with respect to uh, feast or appointed times, new moons, and Sabbaths. He's directing our attention to the Jewish ceremonial days. Now, Leviticus chapter 23 is a very thorough commentary on these Jewish ceremonial days. And again, uh, these uh, same words are used in the commentary. In Leviticus 23, 1 through 3, we have the description of the weekly Sabbath. 
Again, verse 2, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. And there's the overview. A, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there's a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. And so here as he talks about the appointed times, he talks, A, in the first place, about the seventh day Sabbath the weekly Sabbath that was at the very center and heart of uh, the Jewish worship of God, the Sabbath appointed by God at creation, as we've seen, uh, repeated as the positive element in the fourth commandment, is regulated here. And I didn't really touch on this earlier, but notice that the purpose of the Sabbath is a holy convocation. Now, this is interesting because there are those that want to tell us that in the Old Testament the Sabbath was only for physical rest. Everybody was to stay home or stay in their tent or whatever and uh, rest. But here, in Leviticus, we see the purpose of the Sabbath is a holy convocation. Now, what's a holy convocation? Well, convocation is a calling together. The Sabbath was for public worship, which also teaches us that Israel worshipped God not just in the temple, but in all of the cities and villages of Israel and the synagogue then was not an a, uh, exilic development, but in fact uh, God had the meeting places in all of Israel uh, for this weekly corporate worship. And so that's what Paul has in mind here when he talks about uh, the Sabbath or Sabbath day, the weekly uh, Sabbath of the Jewish people and of Jewish worship. And then in uh, verses 4 to the end of the chapter, verse 44... Uh, Leviticus describes for us the three great uh, festivals of uh, Jewish worship. And so we have here the Passover coupled with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We have the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. And these are the appointed times, the great feast or festivals of Jewish worship. And that's what Paul has in view when he talks about um, the festivals or the appointed times. And then you'll notice in verses um, 24 and 25, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder, by blowing the trumpets, and you shall do no laborious work. You shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. And there we learn that on the first of each month, there was also to be a special observance. Uh, this was the new moon. And this is what Paul has in mind when he talks about uh, uh, the worship of the, on the days of the new moons. And so what I want you to see here is that the apostle is quite specific when he talks about no man is to be your judge with respect to days. He's talking about the days of Jewish worship. Now why was this necessary? Well, in the context of the uh, heresy that's going on, these uh, Judaizers are saying that uh, Gentile Christians must observe Jewish ceremonies, they must observe the food laws, but they also must observe uh, the ceremonial laws of the days of worship. And so that uh, uh, a, a, a Gentile Christian is going to have proper standing before God must observe the Jewish Sabbath, the festivals, and the new moon Sabbaths. And that's what Paul is counteracting here. Now, we recognize that in the transition time of the days of the apostles, that some Jewish Christians uh, did 
observe the Jewish festivals and ceremonies not out of religious obligation but recognizing the Christological element now of these festivals and observances. They practice them in addition to the first day Sabbath. And so there are places in the East where you would find Jewish Christians actually observing a a seventh day worship but also keeping uh, the first day with the Christian church. And for a while that was permissible. In fact, we find the Apostle Paul himself, when he goes up to Jerusalem uh, that last time when he's arrested, he was wanting to get Jerusalem by when? By the Feast of Pentecost. And Paul would observe these feasts as part of the in all things to all men, that he might win some. And so he would observe the Jewish festivals, uh, point Christ out to the people through them, but he recognized that there was no merit or virtue or requirement of God to do this. Just as he refused to uh, circumcise a Gentile convert, but for the sake of being all things to all men, he would circumcise Timothy, who was uh, a child of the covenant. And so there was a transition time in which some Christians observed these days. But now as they began to insist that the days be observed, the apostle has to say, no, no. That no man has the authority of God to be your judge or to call you to any obligation to observe the Jewish ceremonial days. Now that's what's going on here. And I hope you can see that. And it's, it's made even more clear in the reason then that the apostle gives in verse 17. As he says that uh, let no one act as your judge in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now here he's saying that, that Christians are not to observe the Jewish days because the Jewish days were typical. They were shadows. They were adumbrations. They were figures of what was to come. And that in Christ, the fullness, the reality has come and thus the shadows pass away. Now the imagery here is uh, fantastic. I love it. It it reminds us that uh, God's salvation is of an eternal purpose. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And having chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, He planned the incarnation, the obedience and death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, all of this is the way that he would accomplish our justification and salvation and protect his own uh, justice and dignity. And so in God's plan, uh, the eternal Son of God in prospect of his incarnation and his work as the incarnate Redeemer towers over all of history in the eternal plan of God. And what God did then is is Christ in prospect of what He does is towering over all of time. The light of revelation comes across the, the Savior and it casts a shadow of revelation in the Old Testament. And that shadow is a picture, a true picture, but not a clearly focused picture of what the Savior was going to accomplish. 
And so the apostle is saying that uh, these observances were all typical. They were prophetic. They were revelatory. But now Christ Himself has come. No longer in shadow. No longer is the light cast over Him. But now He Himself is the light who has come into the world. And under the light of the noonday sun of the Redeemer, the shadows are dispelled. Now how were these things shadows? Well, it is part of the Old Testament system. The uh, offices of prophet, priest, and king were shadows, were types of Christ. The temple and the tabernacle with the priesthood and all of the sacrifices were pictures of the work of Christ. And so were these days, the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbaths. Now think how the festivals were a type of Christ. We begin the Jewish year with the Passover. Uh, the reminder that uh, God, by blood, delivered His people from the bondage of Egypt. And coupled with that, then, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that they are set apart to God. And that thus they are to be uh, unleavened in sincerity and, and godliness. And, of course, we know that when uh, John the Baptist first points to Christ, what is that declaration? Behold, the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, who is to take away the sin of the world. And the Passover then was a picture of Christ, the true uh, propitiation, the true sin bearer, the true wrath bearer who would remove uh, sin uh, from the people of God. And coupled with the Passover, the unleavened bread uh, was in itself in the waving of the barley loaf a picture of the resurrection. When Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of them that slept, he's talking here about the, the feast of unleavened bread. And in fact, on that morning, as the priest was waving the barley loaf, is when Christ rose from the dead. Isn't that fantastic, you see? It's all there. It's a picture, shadowy. We would only figure it out by looking backwards from the New Testament light back to the shadows. But once the New Testament puts it together for us, it indeed is beautiful. Christ has fulfilled the Passover and the unleavened bread. And of course, there's Pentecost. Now, Pentecost in the Old Testament economy was the, um, um, the celebration that the people were uh, inaugurated at Mount Sinai as uh, the people of God and received His law. And it was a pledge as a harvest feast of a harvest that God would uh, grant to His church. That one day the nations would be gathered uh, into the tents of Shem. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out as the fulfillment that the Messiah is now exalted in full glory. And we read there of this roll call of the nations. And you can compare that roll call in Acts chapter 2 with Genesis chapter 10. Uh, the nations that are then the descendants of uh, Japheth uh, and are cast off until the day that God brings them back into uh, the tent of Shem. And now on Pentecost as representatives of these nations hear the gospel in their own tongue as the Spirit is poured out and the harvest begins. And the church becomes now not a nation of one people, but a kingdom that embraces the peoples of the earth. And once again, it's fulfilled in the perfect work of Christ. And the same is true of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Feast of Tabernacles reminded the people of God that they were a pilgrim people. They had been redeemed from Egypt and they were in process. They God had given them a land, but that land was but a picture that they were sojourners. They had a heavenly inheritance. They were moving on and they were moving on to the fullness that would come in the Messiah. And the Feast of Tabernacles concludes with an eighth-day Sabbath. And in John chapter 7, we find Christ on the eighth day, the priest would pour out water. Now, the eighth-day Sabbath in itself, many writers suggest, was uh, typical to the conclusion of the entire feast system in the resurrection of the Savior. And so on the eighth day, the high Sabbath of the Feast of Tabernacles, Christ, as he observes the priests pouring out the water, says then in John 7, 37 and 38, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from this his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And Christ now is God in the midst of his people tabernacling. And on the eighth day is the declaration that in his resurrection, which the uh, early church used that phrase, picking up from the Gospel of John, that the, the reason John uses the eighth day to talk about the first day is to relate that to this feast. That the eighth day, the day of resurrection, is the day of the end of the festivals. And so the last festival also is a declaration that there would come an end of the ceremonial festivals when Christ fulfills all things. And so the reality has come and the shadows passed away. Now, I believe that we say the same thing about the new moon Sabbath, which was observed each month. It's not quite as easy, at least it hasn't been for me, to grasp the significance of the new moon. But I believe that at least it's a possibility that children of Israel were to keep the the uh, a Sabbath, the, the first day of each month, the day of the new moon, as a reminder of the uh, eternal purposes of God in His covenant. Because again, uh, the new moon reminds us of the, of the Noahic covenant with its blessing in Genesis 8, 21 and 22. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now there's the great covenant promise. Now Jeremiah applies that to uh, God's covenant of grace. In Jeremiah chapter 33, he does it first in chapter 31, verses 35 and 36, and then in 33, verses 25 and 26, thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed pattern of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. So it seems that the new moon in its observance was a reminder to God's people that God was going to keep his covenant. Even in the bleak days of exile, when it appeared there would not be a descendant of David in, in whom the people would find salvation, God is saying, as surely as there's a day and a night, as surely as there is a moon, 
I'm going to keep these promises. And so again, each new moon, the church worshipped in anticipation of the Davidic ruler in whom they would find salvation. And of course, when he came then, there was no necessity for the continuing of a, a, a shadowy, um, typical type worship. Now the same is true of the seventh day worship. We've already hinted at this. That uh, when God first gave the seventh day, before the fall, it was a picture of the rest that was provided for Adam and for us through the covenant of works. And when Adam sinned against God and God then established the covenant of grace, he promised a Savior to come. But he was a Savior to come. And they were to wait and believe in and look for the Savior who would come. And thus, they would go from their labor into the rest at the end of the week. The whole pattern of their life was a reminder that, that the Savior had not yet come. They were under a bondage. And then the Savior came. And He removed the burden and the bondage. And He accomplished the rest. In fact, He, he partly did His work of suffering on the day of the Jewish Sabbath. And as we'll see in the next hour, it's in the day of His resurrection then that our Sabbath day changes. But the seventh-day Sabbath was then a weekly reminder to the people of God of their need of a Savior and that God had promised Him and that He would come. Now you see what the Apostle is doing here, don't you? In Colossians 2.16. He says, you, you must not let any man place you under obligation or bondage with these Jewish days because they were all prophecies and types of the Savior, He's come, thus they're done away with. And you see that. And we can say the same thing about the um, seven-year Sabbath and the Jubilee. These are, were but pictures of the great uh, redemptive work of God and were all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, it's not the observance of one day in seven, as we'll see more fully in a moment, that is being repudiated here, but the observance of the Jewish days. Now, this, I believe, helps us understand the other two passages, Romans 14 and Galatians 4, where they're doing exactly the same thing. In Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. And here, the apostle is talking about the observance of Jewish days. Some are going to observe them, some are not going to observe them. In this transition period of the early church, each man had the liberty, each person the liberty, to do that which they wanted to do before God, as long as they did it for God and for His glory. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats, and here he brings in the food laws, uh, does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who refrains from eating, if he does so for the Lord, he does not eat, he gives thanks to God. And so the apostle here is talking about ceremonial days, not the observance of any day, but the Jewish days. And the same is true in Galatians chapter 4. 
verses 10 and 11. You observe days, months, and seasons, and years. And this, again, is a shadow of the shadow of the Jewish days. And I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And so the Christian, Paul says, is under no obligation to keep the Jewish Sabbaths. And even though in the transition period they might do so, what Paul is doing here is laying the foundation for a total removal of even a permissible observance of these days. Which brings us to the second thing, and that is the Christian is under obligation to keep the God-appointed day. Now, I want to drive home a little more that what we see here is no repudiation of the one-day-in-seven pattern. Paul only is repudiating Jewish ceremonial days. And there's a number of, of ways that we can amplify this for proof. Uh, one is Paul's own example. You see, he himself um, calls the church to worship on the first day of the week, and he himself observes worship with the church in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, as did all the other early Christians. There's no record in the Scripture or in church history that there was any gap that the church immediately began to worship the risen Christ on the first day of the week. Some sectors of the church, people also worshipped on the seventh day of the week, but not in place of the first day of the week. And thus, uh, Paul does not have in mind the practice of the church. In fact, for further confirmation, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. Now he's talking here about a public collection. That's enforced by the fact that no collections be made when I come. If you were at home on the first day of the week putting aside, there's that to be a collection made when the apostle came. He's talking here about the church in its assembling, taking a collection for the poor. But notice what he says in verse 1. I, I command you as I directed or commanded all the churches where? In Galatia. Now, Paul has just, we just read that the Galatians were not obligated to observe days. We've got a real problem here. If Paul's talking about the first day of the week, because he has directed them to assemble on the first day of the week and take up an offering. And so if, when he says to them that you're under no obligation to observe days, if he's talking about the pattern of one day and seven, the first day of the week, he's contradicted himself. Do you see that? And of course the apostle does not contradict himself. But he doesn't have in mind the first day Sabbath. He only has in mind in Galatians 4, Romans 14, and Colossians 2, the... Jewish ceremonial Sabbath. Dabney comments on this. Let me just read you a brief part of the quotation. We, however, further assert that by the beggarly elements of days, months, times, years, holy days, new moons, Sabbath days, the apostle means Jewish festivals and those alone. The Christian festival, Sunday, is not here in question because 
about the observance of this, there was no dispute nor diversity in the Christian churches. Jewish and Gentile Christians alike consented universally in its sanctification. When Paul asserts that the regarding of a day or the not regarding it is a non-essential, like the eating or not eating of meats, the natural and fair interpretation is that he means those days which were in debate and no others. When he implies that some innocently regarded every day alike, we should understand every one of those days which were subjects of diversity, not the Christian's Sunday, about which there was no dispute. Do you follow me? That the Apostle Paul is not abrogating the necessity of a one day in seven worship, nor is he abrogating the first day of the week as the day of that worship. He is merely doing away with the necessity of observing Jewish ceremonial days. And out of this, then, there are two very important abiding lessons. In the first place, what the Apostle clearly does here is abrogate Seventh-day worship. See, this is the great stumbling block passage for Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists. Because the Apostle could be no clearer than when he says that you're not under obligation to observe uh, the Sabbath day because it was a shadow of what is to come. And so I believe that this removes all the tension that we keep talking about. Well, if we have the fourth commandment, why is it not on the seventh day? I've already tried to show you that the particular day of the week is a positive commandment, not a part of the eternal, moral, unchangeable part of the command, but the the observance of it that can change according to other purposes that God has in mind. And the seventh day fulfilled its role in the work of Christ, and thus Paul abrogates it. What does he do away with? He does away with seventh-day worship. And thus it's a sin to call the seventh day the Christian Sabbath, or to worship God on the seventh day. That's the first abiding lesson. I go into more detail on that in the book with some quotes from the Adventists. The way they, get, they actually will say, regardless of what the apostles did by their own example, are said, uh, we know we must worship on the seventh day. And the reason is that they've exalted the writings of, of uh, Ellen White uh, to uh, scriptural authority. And it's her prophecies that dictate that they worship on the seventh day. And so they actually put down and denigrate apostolic authority in order to establish the authority of her prophecies. But here Paul clearly, I think you can see it, does away with the seventh-day Sabbath and worship. Now the second principle is a little more um, subtle perhaps, but I believe it's clearly here, and that is that the church does not have the right to appoint a holy day. Do you see that? That's, that's an implication of what's being said in verse 16. No man is to be your judge with respect to days. Ceremonial days may not be appointed by a man. And by inference, if they couldn't appoint the old covenant days, they cannot appoint new covenant days. Now oftentimes when I talk to people, they'll say, well, it really doesn't matter what day I worship God uh, as long as uh, I have a day that I worship God. And there have been those, like Luther and Calvin, that say the Bible doesn't dictate the day. The church may select the day 
that we worship God. But I believe the implication of what Paul says here is the church may not select the day that we worship God. That as God appointed the seventh day in the Old Covenant, it's God who must make the change and it's God who then must make the appointment of the new day. And I believe that God does that and changes it to the first day of the week and in the next hour I will seek to show you what I believe is the biblical basis for that change. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We pray that uh, we have rightly understood it, that you will help us to grasp the significance of what the apostle is doing here, that we'll be able to give an answer for our observance of the Sabbath and why we do not observe it. Bless these truths to us, to our confidence, and to our practice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.